0: Greetings and welcome, this is Doug Taylor, welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. It is March 21st, 2010, and we are starting in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, and the verse reads, There is one who speaks like the cutting of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing there is one who speaks through speaks like the cutting of a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing so as we generally do in our classes the first thing we do is ask ourselves what are the questions meaning what are the questions around the verse that are not immediately clear what questions come to mind as we read the verse What questions would we need to answer in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to get across to us? There is one who speaks like the cutting of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Any thoughts on questions? So, let me suggest a couple. The first one is, what does it mean to speak like the cutting of a sword? Okay. Good, Naomi, you mentioned uh, tongue is like a sword and the other one heals, or one tongue is like a sword and the other one heals. So, what is uh, so what is pierced and what actually gets healed. Very good. So we've got to understand what this cutting of a sword is like, what this means, and how does the tongue of the wise actually heal, and what does get healed in the process. So I'll suggest that the verse is showing a contrast to us regarding the use of speech when it talks about the tongue of the wise or one who speaks like the cutting of the sword uh, the, the verse is focused around speech which is one of the most powerful things that we have uh, at our disposal and in the first half it's saying one person uses words like a sword uh, like the cutting of the sword it's like a weapon to him uh, we sometimes use the term a sharp tongue uh, doesn't literally mean the tongue itself is sharp, but it means that the words that come out are very, very uh, pointed and uh, can be very, very cutting. And there is a way to use one's speech as a weapon. So that would raise a possible question of well, what is the source of that? Why would someone have a sharp tongue? And If I recall Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that that comes from aggression. It comes from anger. And if you recall back in verse 16, we talked uh, about uh, the fool's anger will be known on that very day. Uh, So the person apparently has to have an immediate outlet for his anger. Uh, If you've been around people, a lot of people get angry. But some people immediately will uh, say something very cutting to someone else, uh, or maybe they'll even go so far as to get into a physical fight. Other people will manage to control their anger and keep that within. Um, So the person in the first half gets that aggression out by using their words, their speech, like the cutting of a sword. It's like, I'm gonna take my sword and whack at you uh, because I'm angry with you. By contrast, the wise person uses words to heal. And again, tongue is referring to his words. His, the wise person is thinking about how do I benefit other people? How do I make situations better? How do I bring about peace? and so he crafts or she crafts her words in order to bring about that peace to heal situations to benefit other people to make situations that might be explosive into peaceful situations so the wise person uses those words to bring about healing and the healing is about situations and other people and uh, basically benefiting them. Uh, So if a person is hurting or in a difficult situation, the wise person will think that through and use their words to make that situation better, try to encourage the other person if that's appropriate, or counsel the other person if that's appropriate, uh, or whatever it might be. And they're wise enough, because of their wisdom, they're wise enough to be able to analyze the situation and figure out, okay, what is the best thing I can say in this situation to make the situation better, help to bring about peace, help the other people. Now, in the study of Torah, Rabbi Moskowitz has pointed out, you start with the facts and then you abstract out of those facts the principle. This is a very, very important concept. Um, The purpose of a section in Torah like, uh, for example, one of the stories, is so that we can abstract from it or pull out of it the underlying principles that we can then use in our lives uh, in a very practical way. By contrast, the sharp-tongued person starts with their emotions. They're acting from those. So the wise person is always looking at the facts And abstracting out the principles from those facts. Now, interestingly scientists sometimes don't realize that the process that they use, which is abstracting principles from facts, I mean if if we think about for a minute what what a scientist does, what do they do? They observe what's going on in nature, they run an experiment, they do this or that, and then they see certain data points, certain facts, And from that, then they try to figure out what's the principle that underlies those facts? What's the principle that makes all those things operate? Uh, And then they get to a particular particular conclusion and we will say, well that's science. So they are abstracting principles from facts. What some of those scientists don't realize is that that same process could be used in their personal lives. I mean, they go about experiments in a laboratory that way, but they may not realize that the same principle applies to life itself. You look at facts, and then you abstract from those facts the principles. So, that raises an interesting practical question, which I'll pose to you. When you have the imp- an impulse, say, the impulse to use words as a sword, how do you control that so that you can look at the facts? Any thoughts about how you would control that impulse to want to use your tongue like a sword? How would you control that so that you could just look at the facts of the situation and work from there? Any ideas? So I'll suggest uh, that logic itself can help stop your emotions. Logic can help you control those everyday emotions if you keep going over and over the ideas and the different cases in Mishlei, uh, in the Book of Proverbs. And Naomi, you've said control the mind to control the tongue. Yes, it's very, very true. And there's there are really two ways I'd suggest that you can go about doing that. One is uh, you can sort of mentally muscle yourself into it. Uh, which sometimes we have to do. We sort of have to mentally muscle ourselves into maybe not having an angry outburst. And we can can do that on certain occasions and we can do it for a little while. But to make the behavior change real, what we have to do is go over and over the ideas. And it's by going over and over the ideas and the logic behind those ideas uh, and the different cases where those ideas apply that can then uh, help teach us uh, or change our our makeup so that we'll automatically start operating that way and we won't have to force it. In the beginning I may have to force it, but then when I get away from the situation I can stop and say okay. So if I had yelled at that guy then that would have created a bad situation and he probably would have stomped out of the room and I would have had to have done XYZ and and I just look at all the consequences of what would have happened if I had done that, and I just go over that idea in my mind many times. Gee, if I'd yelled at that guy, this would be the outcome, and it would have made this kind of a mess, and then I would have had to have gone and cleaned up the mess, and you know, perhaps apologized to him, and da 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 da. And so I go over and over those ideas, and pretty soon then my emotions start to become changed as a result of that because I've so very clearly explained the real logic, the real rationale of the real reality to my mind. Okay, any questions on that verse? And Connie, welcome. It's great to have you. This is Doug Taylor. Uh, we are just about to start Proverbs chapter 12 verse 19 Proverbs chapter 12 verse 19 and the verse reads the lips of truth will exist forever but a lying tongue is only for a moment the lips of truth will exist forever but a lying tongue is only for a moment. And so, Connie, our normal process is that we read the verse and then we ask, before we try to explain the verse, we ask ourselves what are the questions that we need to ask around this verse in order to understand what King Solomon's trying to teach us from that? What would we need to ask and ultimately answer? in order to be able to get the meaning from this. So, any thoughts on questions that come to mind as you read this verse? Not the answers yet, but just the questions. The lips of truth will exist forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. What might the questions be? any thoughts so let me suggest a couple first of all what are lips of truth and it's kind of an interesting term Uh, We want to understand what those are and then the verse says the lips of truth will exist forever well why will they exist forever and how will they exist forever because last time I checked, we all die. And so if this is talking about a person's lips, that that's, doesn't match what we observe in real life. Um, Naomi, you've asked, what is true speech? Okay, and I'm assuming your translation probably has lips of truth as true speech. Uh, and uh, lying is only for uh, a moment, and you have for a short time. okay. So why is it? Why is a lying tongue only for a moment? So, let's start out with the the first part which talks about lips of truth. It says lips of truth will exist forever. Lips of truth would, in its simplest interpretation, seem to be lips that speak truth. It's a metaphor uh, for uh, real ideas. Real ideas that are are spoken. It can't mean someone's actual lips because we know that people their physical bodies die and the physical body deteriorates and so forth so it, it's it got to be a metaphor for something else uh, and in this case I'll suggest it's a metaphor for uh, true ideas, real ideas um, and again you know we know that everyone dies and King Solomon obviously knew that as well so he had to be talking about the ideas that come out of those uh, lips and those ideas, those words of truth I'll submit to you that they exist forever how is that? a true idea affects other people in a positive way and can move them closer to reality those kinds of ideas are timeless and because they reflect reality They also have the staying power of reality, if you will. True ideas represent abstract concepts, and abstract concepts, if they're true, have a timeless existence all their own. For example, if we think about mathematical laws, there is a mathematical law that says A plus B is equal to B plus A now that's an abstract concept we don't don't see that physically in the real world we see demonstrations of that but we don't see the law itself so it's unaffected by time and it's unaffected by the existence of the physical world so I will suggest to you that lips of truth will exist forever means that the ideas of truth will exist forever and in the uh, Art Scroll book of Proverbs, on page 223, they mention that the Rabbeinu Yona says on this verse that if a person uh, is careful to speak truthfully, or they, uh, they mark that section in with this verse, uh, the Rabbeinu Yonah says that if a person is careful to speak truthfully, then his words will be accepted and believed, and others will be eager to hear his words and we can look around in the real world and see that when someone consistently speaks truthfully he gets a certain reputation so that when he speaks other people listen and there have been probably people in your lives that you've been exposed to who speak true ideas and so when they say something you realize it's something that you want to hear and then you afford them a certain level of respect because you know that you can have confidence in what they say Uh, so if, if a person is really consistently truthful then other people want to hear what that person has to say he becomes one of those people who people seek out, who other people seek out and when he says stuff people take note of what he has to say so That's the first half. Now what about the second half? What does that mean? Why do you think it says a lying tongue is only for a moment, or a very short time? Why would you think that's true? Any thoughts? Why would a lying tongue be only for a moment? So let's look at it this way. By definition, a lying tongue is false. I mean, that's what a lie is. Now, since it's false, it's directly opposed to reality. Now, from our studies and our observations in life, which is going to win out? Reality or something directly opposed to reality? I mean, if you think long-term, Which one's going to win? Reality or something that's directly opposed to reality? I'll submit that reality is going to win. Yes. Thank you, Naomi. What happens is that the lie is eventually uncovered. I mean, people find out about these things. In, in, In comparison to the timeliness of a true idea, Or should be timelessness, excuse me, of a true idea, the lie only lasts for a moment. And it's soon found out, and then consequences follow. So the verse seems to be summarizing the timelessness, uh, or the the, uh, duration rather, of speech. Real ideas exist forever. While relatively speaking, lies only last for a moment. And then they're uncovered, and you know, then that lie is, is found out. Okay. Any questions on this verse? I will take. No response. Great, thank you, Connie, and thanks for your answer on uh, on reality. Good. Okay, so let's move on to Proverbs chapter twelve, verse twenty. And this one reads, "Deceit is in the heart of those that plough evil, but for the counsellors of peace, counsellors of peace, there is joy." Deceit is in the heart of those that plow evil, but for the counselors of peace there is joy. So, what are the questions? Deceit is in the heart of those that plow evil, but for the counselors of peace there is joy. What are the questions? So, Naomi, you've asked uh, a couple questions here. Uh, Why is deceit linked with the heart? Okay. Uh, Not the mind. And gladness, too, is in the heart. Okay. Very good question. Um, Rabbi Moskowitz shared uh, in a class once that when this book was written, or at the time of the writing of this book, the term heart meant the mind. It did not mean the heart like we tend to think of the heart these days. We tend to think of the heart in terms of the emotions. But apparently at the time this book was being written, the heart was referring to the mind. Uh, so we're really saying here deceit is in the mind of those that plow evil Uh, so it's linked with uh, the mind rather than what we would normally think of as the heart and you're right gladness too well uh, gladness is also is a uh, uh, gladness is an emotion Whereas, deceit is more about the way that you go about doing something. Uh, We talk about a deceitful thing to do. And so, that's more about uh, a character quality as opposed to an emotion, while gladness is more about uh, an emotional reaction to something. And Connie, yes, I would agree with you. Deceit is hate and unhappiness. It's a desire to be able to fool someone um, and and do something dishonestly. Uh, so I, as a start, we could say that deceit is uh, dis, some kind of dishonest act or statement. Um, and so it appears that the first half is saying that dishonest acts or statements are in the minds of a person who does evil. But what does it mean to plow evil? Any thoughts on that one? It's a very interesting metaphor that that King Solomon has put here. Deceit is in the heart of those that plow evil. What do you think he means by that? is in the mind of those that plow evil. Okay, Connie, you said deceit is also jealousy and planting seeds uh, of deceit. Okay? Yeah, plowing, I mean, if we think about just, if we take it literally, plowing is all about turning the earth over usually to plant crops. So, there's a clear intent involved in plowing. Um, And Connie, you've mentioned wanting others to be like you uh, could be under certain circumstances, uh, but I'm not sure that that's always deceit in the sense of a dishonest act or statement I mean a father might want his children to be like him um, but that, I'm not sure that we would necessarily classify that as something deceitful but there is when you're plowing a clear intent Um, when King Solomon talks about plowing evil he's not talking about someone who does an isolated evil act okay He's talking about someone who actively cultivates evil. Uh, If you think about it, you know, you don't farm by accident. Uh, If you farm, you go out there and get the plow out and you, you know, take care of the field and plant crops and so forth. It's not just a, a happenstance kind of thing. So here, the verse seems to be talking about someone who actively cultivates evil. That's his conscious approach to life. In other words... It's not an accidental or once in a while kind of thing. Uh, we're talking about someone here who is serious about their evil, uh, not just a side thing. Um, and Naomi, you mentioned planning tricks on others to fail uh, or to fall. Yes. So, deceit is, is those dishonest acts or statements and intent to cheat or mislead. Yes, I would agree. Um, and yeah, Connie, you mentioned plowing up the good seeds. Yeah, the, the deceitful person is really plowing and cultivating evil, which uh, basically removes from it, you know, the possibility of uh, of the good stuff. He's, he's plowing up his field, and if it had good seeds in it, um, you know, he's removing those, although he's focused on evil. Uh, that's his thing. So, the first half seems to be saying that for someone who's actively involved in cultivating evil, dishonest acts or statements, uh, you know, as you mentioned, cheating, misleading, planning tricks on others and that sort of thing, that's actively in that person's mind. Um, and again, not, it's not that an evil person will occasionally do something dishonest. It seems to be saying that dishonesty is his main mode of operation. So deceit is in the heart of those that plow evil. Those that are cultivating evil, they are going to have deceit uh, in their heart and be planning, or in their mind, and be planning dishonest acts or statements and thinking along those lines. Just if we were to stop here, there is some important information for us that we can use because if we recognize that there is a person who cultivates evil we can pretty well have a good sense then that if we start dealing with them they probably are going to have deceit somewhere on their agenda and we would want to uh, be able to steer clear and avoid that. Now what about the second half? The second half says for the counselors of peace there is joy. Well, what's a counselor of peace? And I'd suggest that is a person who provides advice to others that leads to peace. So, here we have a person who is actively involved in advising others, or it could be advising himself, in actions and statements that will lead to peaceful outcomes. These are actions and statements that will avoid strife, and in order to do that, they must consider the consequences both short term and long term of the actions and the statements so here's a person the counselor of peace is uh, analyzing consequences of actions and statements and providing advice again it could be to himself could be to others that is aimed at producing peace so the person in the first half is focused on dishonest actions and statements in order to obtain his evil ends which are focused on himself and satisfying his desires, while the person in the second half is focused on honest actions and statements that lead to peaceful outcomes. Okay. Now, that's what a Counselor of Peace is doing. The question is, why is there joy for the Counselor of Peace? I mean, here's a guy doing stuff, or a woman doing stuff. But the verse says, For the counselors of peace there is joy. So where does the joy come from? And I'll suggest this as a, as a result, or as, a, as an answer. Because the counselor of peace is focused on honest actions and statements that lead to peaceful outcomes... He's not only focused on reality, but he's also actively devoting his energies to creating harmony in the world. Now, because his thoughts are in line with reality and devoted to creating harmony in the world, he's in line with God's intent for man. I mean, joy would, would of necessity be a byproduct of this as I'll submit that there is no joy greater than being in the world of reality and being in line with God's intent for man. This person, man or woman, gets to be involved in reality and gets to help in the creation of outcomes that bring joy to his fellow man. So it's it's hard to imagine that a person wouldn't have joy from that. Okay, are we clear so far? Any questions up to this point? Okay, good, come thank you. Now, but that raises another concern to me. And the other concern is this. The explanation we gave may explain why there is joy for the Counselor of Peace. But why is King Solomon telling me this? I mean, okay, so the Counselor of Peace gets joy from what he does. So what? How does that knowledge help? And I'll suggest that King Solomon is telling us something important about the difference between the man of peace and the man of evil. The man of peace is operating within the laws of reality and he's involved in the world of ideas, the world of analyzing consequences. In addition to all of the valuable benefits associated with that, he experiences joy. Now, don't people constantly search for that? I mean, they search for joy, they long for joy. Here, Solomon is telling us that the Counselor of Peace actually gets it. He gets the joy. But not because he directly sought after it, but because it is a consequence of his lifestyle and his approach to life. I mean, can you imagine going to bed each night reflecting on the fact that you... Uh, helped another person or yourself uh, in a positive way to avoid a difficult situation and achieve peace either in your life or in someone else's life. I mean, that's a wonderful feeling of joy. And it's a feeling that the evil person described in the first half of the verse can never experience. His life is all about dishonest actions and statements and all of the machinations that he'll have to invent to cover up all of that dishonesty there can be no joy in that life I mean it's just constant conflict and maneuvering to try to avoid discovery and protect himself from the natural consequences of his actions so I will suggest that The, the verse is telling us an important contrast about the inner life of the wicked versus the inner life of the righteous. For the wicked, there is constant dishonesty and conflict. For the righteous, there is joy. Okay. Yes, Connie, happy versus unhappy and peace versus unrest. Okay, any questions up to this point? Okay, thank you. Now, let me share with you Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation of the verse. Um, What I just gave you was my interpretation. Um, Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, He said if we define plowing as working through or working beneath something or thinking through it, then deceit is more than lying. It's a working through. Uh, It's also the opposite of the second half. The advisor of peace thinks the situation through and tries to advise others. And that helps bring him peace but the deceitful person is a con man he's trying to con other people so how do you become a person of peace? well, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that as far as the book of Psalms is concerned peace comes as a result of my knowledge of God but what is it in Proverbs that would cause a person to work through a life of peace and why is he happy and why is the con man unhappy? so we have to ask this important question what is peace? and the malbum points out that evil and peace are opposites that is peace means no conflicts Everything's in balance. Okay, I have no conflicts. Peace, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz and I wrote an article years ago about this, um, pointing out that peace is not a positive thing; it's a negative thing. It's the absence of conflicts. And so, Mishlei, the book of Proverbs, is about working toward removing conflicts. So, and, and naturally, there are very few relationships that don't involve conflicts. And as we work on Proverbs, we start removing emotions that cause conflicts with other people, like competition and jealousy and those kinds of emotions. And so then, we can enjoy other people and be happy with other people. So, in the book of Proverbs, peace is a natural result of removing my conflicts, and we do that by going through each and every case that Proverbs puts forth, so that our minds can see this and these truths from multiple different directions with multiple demonstrations. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, good. Thank you. So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21. Verse 21 reads, No wrong shall befall the righteous, but the wicked are filled with evil. No wrong shall befall the righteous, but the wicked are filled with evil. So, what would you say the questions are? What questions can we ask around this verse to help us understand what it means? No wrong shall befall the righteous, but the wicked are filled with evil. Okay, Connie, doesn't a righteous person do wrong sometimes? Yes, that could be true. And Naomi, iniquity and evil are connected with the persons. Yes. Also good. So let me add some questions to that. When it says no wrong shall befall the righteous, what does King Solomon mean by that? Uh, I mean, I see wrongs, I mean, historically, we can look back and see that, you know, bad things happen to righteous people. And how do we, how do we reconcile that? Uh, I mean, King Solomon, surely he knew that. So, what's the verse saying there? And really, to zero in on it, I think we're going to have to define, what's a wrong mean? it says no wrong shall befall the righteous well what does it mean by wrong and then it says that the wicked are filled with evil well I guess I have a question about that and that is what does that mean because on its face that seems really obvious like why would King Solomon even bother to tell me that the wicked are filled with evil well of course So he must have had something in mind that he was getting at. And finally, what does the first half have to do with the second half? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any connection here. No wrong shall befall the righteous, but the wicked are filled with evil. I mean, I would expect it, for example, to say, no wrong shall befall the righteous, but a bunch of wrongs will befall the wicked. But that's not what it says. It doesn't seem like the two halves match. so let's start with this question of what's a wrong and I'll suggest three possible definitions of wrong in this context maybe there are others and I'm open to them Uh, but I think I could see three possible definitions one is a wrong is something that the righteous didn't anticipate Uh, so you know, um, uh, something in business happens that the righteous didn't anticipate, or uh, you know, something terrible happens that the righteous didn't anticipate. So that's that's a one possibility. I'm just laying down possibilities now. I'm not analyzing whether they work or not. Just possibilities. The second possibility of a wrong is something that brings the righteous pain. Something that brings the righteous pain. And the third possibility is that a wrong means inadvertently making a mistake or committing a sin. So, let's take them one by one. The first one was that a wrong is something that the righteous didn't anticipate. Uh, and it says no wrong shall befall the righteous, which if by this definition would mean nothing will happen to the righteous that they didn't anticipate. Well, from our observation of life, I'll suggest that the verse can't be talking about that because things do happen that the righteous don't anticipate. A righteous person may not anticipate a flat tire. They may not, may not anticipate a flight being canceled. Uh, any number of things. Uh, sure, there were a number of righteous people who didn't anticipate the Holocaust. So it doesn't seem that we can say that none of those things will befall the righteous, because we can see in the real world that they do. So, what about the second definition? Uh, that a wrong is something that brings the righteous pain. Well, again, we see that the righteous are not always shielded from pain. There are lots of examples of righteous people experiencing pain. Uh, I mean, again, the Holocaust is an example. Uh, So we can't really see that that situation operates in the real world so that leaves us with definition number three which is a wrong is inadvertently making a mistake or committing a sin the sages approached this verse by discussing how one sin leads to another and how a correct act leads to another correct act habit is a very powerful force And once a person gets into a particular groove, that groove can almost take on a life of its own. That attribute of habit can work for or against a person. Now a righteous person focuses on doing the right thing, on doing good acts, acts of kindness, thinking through consequences, analyzing situations, uh, and all the kinds of things that we've discussed. Well, one good act tends to lead to another good act. So the righteous person will not inadvertently stumble into sin. Why? He's already developed a strong groove, a strong habit of thinking things through and acting properly. So no wrong, that is no inadvertent sin, will befall him. So that's my understanding of what the first half of the verse is saying. Now, by contrast, the wicked are going down the opposite path. They're doing one evil thing after another, and the same principle applies. If you do one wrong act, it opens up a stronger possibility to do another wrong act. In fact, once you do a wrong act, it becomes easier to do it again and again and after a while it doesn't even seem like a wrong act. That's why a person might start out by stealing a pack of gum and eventually graduate to major armed robbery. It's a very slippery slope because your mind rationalizes, oh I guess that wasn't such a bad thing after all, you know, just a pack of gum, no big deal, and Pretty soon you've rationalized that that's okay, and if you can rationalize that it's okay to steal a pack of gum, well you can rationalize that it's you know, okay to, to uh, steal something more expensive, and then something more expensive, and then pretty soon you can rationalize that it's okay to use force to get what you want, and so forth. So the verse says that the wicked are full of evil. And while no wrong, that is no inadvertent sin, will befall the righteous, the wicked person's life is filled with evil, filled with wrongs, that will happen as a result of his wicked path. Okay, any questions on that? Okay. Um, then I'm going to just jump a little bit because we have a few minutes left and I want to share with you an idea that Rabbi Moskowitz shared um, on repentance uh, and it's, it's related to our studies uh, in Proverbs and what he said was like this he said as far as halakha is concerned halakha being law the Torah law. He said there are two categories in relation to repentance. So suppose a person is uh, supposed to wash his hands before eating, and they don't do it. Well, then they have to push themselves to do it until it becomes a habit. But if it is something, I mean, that's, that's, I guess, what you could call a, a very simple and straightforward action. But if it's Gossip, la shown hara, or honoring parents, or something like that—it's different. You need a plan or a strategy to deal with that. Uh, you need a motive, so you have to see the consequences involved. Uh, for example, uh, if we think about anger, what are the consequences of anger? Well, either I don't—I mean, I. My choices are I can I not let it out, in which case I suffer because I've bottled up the anger inside me, or I do let it out. And if I let it out, if I have some outlet, like revenge, I'll never know when I'm going to get consequences uh, as a result of that action. So, there's a statement in, I think it's Perkeavos Ethics of the Fathers. The question, who is a warrior? He who conquers his emotions. And Rabbi Moskowitz paraphrased this nicely uh, to say, uh, who's a soldier of fortune? Uh, He who conquers his emotions because when you start this, uh, you're always into it. And there is pain in trying to change an emotion, but you're doing it uh, as... And I think his intent on Soldier of Fortune was you're, you're doing it for yourself. You are, you're doing it because of the gain for you. For example, if you want to stop gossip or Lashon Hara, you have to analyze the consequences and then steel yourself to accept the pain of having to look at that and having to uh, apply that logic to prevent yourself uh, from doing it. So when a person goes to war, he might be afraid of dying, but his emotions are, are outward toward the enemy. When you go to change yourself, which is a lot of what you know we're doing in, in Michelin here, is we're going over and over ideas to get them real to us so that we can change ourselves. When we go to change ourselves, we have to turn inwards, and there will be a war within ourselves around that. And we have to keep going. Sometimes we fight a battle and we lose it, but you can't quit the war. You have to constantly get back you know, on the, on the, on the horse, if the horse throws you off, so to speak, and, and get back on the horse and uh, keep, keep pushing at it. That's what you have to do if you're going to change a personality trait that you have. If you see a trait in yourself, an emotion, that is in your way. That is preventing you from being successful. That is uh, making your life difficult for you. You have to analyze that emotion and deal with it. And it probably will be difficult. Uh, there will be conflict involved, and uh, and just it will be a challenge. Um, so you have to be prepared for the challenge and recognize it is going to be a challenge. And yeah, sometimes I may you know, not do it right, and then I pick myself up, and I say, okay, I'll, you know, work on it again tomorrow, and I stay in the fight. No matter what, I stay in the fight, and eventually, uh, then I can have an impact on that emotion, and uh, improve the quality of my life. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, in that case, we will stop for the evening.